To be Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. So C.S. Lewis wrote in a short article for a local parish newspaper. So always read your Trinitarian because you never know what article you might find in there. But this quote captures something important about forgiveness. Forgiveness does not mean excusing behavior. Rather, it acknowledges the reality of evil and chooses not to hold it against the offending party. The theme of forgiveness is central to all four of the readings this morning, uh, especially the parable of the unforgiving servant and the story of Joseph and his brothers in Genesis. Last time these lections came up, I preached on the parable, so let's look at the Joseph story today. If you're a real glutton for punishment, you can go back three years and listen to the sermon from three years ago. The larger story of which this takes part uh, takes up the last third of the book of Genesis, and it's one of the richest narratives in all of Scripture. You can read the whole thing in under an hour, and it's a great read. I'm going to go over just the highlights, so it's highly recommended if you just go back and read that. Uh, Our passage comes at the end of this narrative, Um, so here's a quick recap. When the story begins, Joseph is the youngest son of the patriarch Jacob and he's not well-loved among his brothers. This is because he has a couple dreams in which his family bows down before him. Probably, probably not tactful to share that information with them. One day his brothers see Joseph coming in the distance and devise a plot to murder him. Reuben, the eldest, convinces the others to leave him for dead in a pit instead, secretly planning to rescue him later. But just then, some Midianite traders come by, and his brother sells Joseph, brothers sell Joseph into slavery. When they return home, they tell their father that he has been eaten by a wild animal, and their father is heartbroken. Meanwhile, Joseph is in Egypt, working as a slave in Potiphar's house. He ends up being falsely accused and is sent to prison, but he impresses Pharaoh by interpreting his dream and warning him about a large-scale famine on the horizon. So Pharaoh raises him up and makes him head of the Famine Prevention Committee, kind of like our grants committee here. Once the famine reaches Canaan, Jacob sends his sons to Egypt to buy food, and not knowing it was their brother, they bow down before Joseph, just as in his dream, to plead for grain. Eventually, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and tells them to bring their father, Jacob, and the whole family down to live in Egypt. It's a lot easier than hauling the grain back and forth for the next six years. Joseph assures them that he harbors no hard feelings, but his brothers show many signs of a guilty conscience. Well, Jacob finally comes down to Egypt, and not long after, he dies there. So you can see why his brothers might be a little nervous in our passage today. They did not exactly act with brotherly love towards Joseph. And now he holds their fate in his hands. He already said that he forgave them, but maybe he was just waiting for their father to die so that he could take his revenge. They realize that Joseph has a choice, in other words. He can make his brothers pay for what they did, or he can pay the debt himself, voluntarily suffering for them. And although Joseph reassured them before, they have not yet admitted their guilt or asked for forgiveness. 
So both Joseph's brothers really extend themselves in their apology. Their elaborate appeal reminds me of Anne Shirley's apology to Mrs. Rachel Lind in the opening chapters of Anne of Green Gables. You'll remember that this concerns a certain comment about the color of her hair. Or maybe you won't. Last time no one laughed, so I'm assuming you haven't read Anne of Green Gables in a while. It's a lovely story. At first she refuses to apologize, uh, then convinced by her adoptive guardian Matthew that she might as well get it over with, she reluctantly agrees. But when she arrives, she falls down on her knees, clasps Mrs. Lynn's hands, puts on a mournful face, and delivers a very thorough apology with lots of feeling. On the walk back to Green Gables, it becomes clear that although the apology was sincere, her delivery was just for show. She thought she might as well do it with all the flair she could. And in some ways, this is not too far from what's hap what happens with Joseph's brothers. Look at all the elaborate details that are included. They send a message to Joseph first. Now, unfortunately, our translation missed that. But if you check another English translation, you'll see that they do not go to Joseph directly. Um, they send a messenger to tell Joseph about their father's request and only come to Joseph after they see his response to that message. Then they put uh, this request, in all likelihood made up, on the lips of their dying father. Surely Joseph wouldn't deny their father's last request on his deathbed. They ask for forgiveness twice, once by proxy and once themselves. They use just about every word they can to describe their, the seriousness of their wrongdoing. They call it a crime, a sin, a great evil, to make their repentance clear. And lastly, they ask Joseph to, ask, to act not like a brother, perhaps they're thinking of their own treatment of their brother, but like their father's God, who shows mercy and forgives. That's remarkable. They appeal not to physical kinship, but to spiritual kinship. Of course, Joseph has already forgiven them, so he simply weeps. But the text doesn't tell us why. Perhaps because their admission of wrongdoing finally makes reconciliation possible. Remember, Father Edward pointed out last week that we can always offer forgiveness, but reconciliation requires that the offender admit their guilt and seek forgiveness. His brothers here show that they are ready to mend the relationship that they broke. Well, after he weeps and they throw themselves at his feet, again in fulfillment of that dream, he explains to them why he chose to forgive and what forgiveness looks like in practice. And you'd be hard-pressed to find a better model for how to forgive than his reply. He says three things. First, am I in the place of God? Forgiveness requires a proper understanding of oneself and of God. The contemporary theologian Miroslav Volf points out that Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Furthermore, by withholding forgiveness and trying to hold others accountable for their misdeeds, we are actually usurping a role that belongs to God alone. The book of Genesis begins with humans trying to be God 
to usurp his prerogatives. It ends with Joseph letting God be God. Second, Joseph says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He has a profound faith in God's providence. And the same word used twice here has two different connotations. It can mean, on the one hand, uh, to plan in a general sense, or it can also mean, in a more negative sense, to plot or scheme. We might translate this phrase, you plotted evil against me, but God planned it for good. And that simple, hard-won truth is remarkably good news, because it means that though sinful humans are capable of great evil, our schemes will not ultimately thwart God's plan. Joseph's life is the clearest example in the Old Testament of this, and the ultimate example is, of course, the death of Jesus. Reflection on this theme throughout the Bible is the basis of St. Paul's remarkable declaration in Romans that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Lastly, Joseph says, I will provide for you and your little ones. Not only does he not make his brothers pay for what they did, he repays their evil with good. He bears the consequences of their actions. He voluntarily suffers for them. And then he shows his love for them by willing their good, by acting in their best interest. St. Paul again gives classic expression to this idea. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now that sounds beautiful. In real life, it's not easy. But we must remind ourselves that as Christians, we are a community of forgiven sinners. And we are called to do the hard work of forgiveness in our relationships, to forgive the inexcusable in others, because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. So how are you doing in this area? Do you have any relationships in need of forgiveness? Do you, like Joseph's brothers, feel the nagging weight of a guilty conscience? God would have us free from the chains of resentment and guilt and bitterness, a freedom that only comes through forgiveness. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, the God who forgives all our sins, who redeems your life from the grave, who has not dealt with us according to our sins, but cares for us as a father cares for his children. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits.